for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, I am blue. You are bright and shiny in my mind. You got me loving, hating, crazy indecision in my mind. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blasey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and yes, it is episode number 81. And today, I have the guys from the Habitat Podcast on, Brian and Jared you know, I wanted to get these guys on. I was on their podcast a couple months ago, and I actually put it on my RSS feed as well. I wanted to get these guys on to talk about some last-minute food plot things as far as maybe saving a food plot, going in and, you know, top-dressing it and, and working it up and, you know, things to save it last minute. You know, we're in September now. Season is really fastly approaching. So if you got a food plot and it's not doing what you want it to, this might be the podcast you want to listen to. There's some there's some really cool talking points in, in here, and these guys give some really good information on how to save a food plot and, and what to do. I kind of kick it off with a couple scenarios that I'm actually having on a farm here in Michigan that, you know, we just didn't have a lot of rain this summer, and the food plots didn't take off like I wanted to. So, you know, those guys helped me out a little bit, and hopefully it'll help you out as well. So hopefully you guys will enjoy this one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast. And I'm going to kick it over to this interview with Brian and Jared. And welcome back to the Fall Podcast. And today I have... I guess I could call it returning guests. I mean, I ha- you guys had me on your podcast, but uh, Jared and Brian from the Habitat Podcast. How you guys doing, man? What's up, guy? How are you? Doing good, Aaron. Good deal, Brian. Uh, Brian, how's your uh, your weather down there right now? Uh, it's been really hot. Uh, I just went up and sighted in 
my uh, dad's 30-06 that I'm taking out west. And I, I said to my buddy up at the range, I said, okay, I, I don't want to wish the summer away, but I don't really like being up on the gun range when it's 85 <laughs> degrees. Yeah, yeah. And we've, been getting, we've been getting some timely rains for the food plot, so that, that heat's good for all the stuff that I need the heat for, so I'm not going to complain. Oh, good deal. Well, I think Jared and I have been kind of getting the same weather. Has it been pretty chilly for you in the mornings and, and getting down there in the evenings? Yeah, yeah. It feels great. Yeah, it's, it falls definitely in the air. I, I actually mowed my lawn yesterday, and I've got these oak trees in my in my yard, these white oak trees. And I'll tell you what, if if those oak trees are any inclination of the acorn drop this year, we're going to have a really, really good acorn drop because they are all over and the leaves are falling on the ground as well. So the fall is in the air. I can, I can for sure see that. So the fall is definitely in the air. And I wanted to get you guys on today to talk about, I mean, we're in September now and I mean, season's starting here. I'm leaving next Friday for Kansas archery. So I can't wait for that. And you know, I, I want to get you guys on to talk about a little bit of habitat and, and food plots. I mean, last time you guys had me on your podcast, we talked about, you know, a lot about my one acre and small acre properties and, and hinge cutting and everything like that. But, you know, we're getting to crunch time here and I'm not going to lie to you, Brian, you just, you just mentioned it, you know, the rain situation with food plots. Well, we're not getting any rain up here, hardly at all. It is dry, and I planted some food plots, and I am praying to the to the hunting and food plot gods that it'll rain, but it has not, <laughs> and I am struggling, man. I am struggling right now, and I need some help. So <laughs> I'm not an expert at any of this because, you know, that's why I turned to guys like you guys to to kind of lend a helping hand maybe, but I might kick it off right here and, and just kind of explain my one of my scenarios and and pick your guys' brain on it. Now, I, I, I made a new plot this year where there, where it's never been worked up before, and it was just like a goldenrod CRP grass, and it was right on the edge of an ag field. It's always been an ag field. The plot's probably a quarter acre, just a little kill plot. And I uh, went in there, sprayed it all. Well, actually, first I went in there and weed whipped it, and then I sprayed it all, killed it, Went back in there, worked it up really good. Like I worked it up quite a bit just to get the ground going, and, it, and the ground was kind of hard. It looked like the soil was good. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't do a soil test because I was lazy and didn't have a lot of time. And uh, I went in there and broadcasted some chicory. Now, I haven't planted a lot of chicory in my day, and broadcasting some chicory, and I, and I packed it in. And, you know, it's been probably... I don't think it's been a month. It might be a month since I planted it. We've probably got in total an inch of rain. And I went back Thanks. there and I, yeah, I went back there and, and looked at it and it's coming up, but it is really, really spotty. And I haven't fertilized anything. Um, do you have any ideas? Either one of you. I mean, I don't know who wants to take it first. Brian, Jared, I don't care, but I, I'm in desperate mode right now. I need some help. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all in the same boat at this time of year. Everybody finds a lot of their uh, food plots, whether it's your soybeans or your corn, or in your case, chicory. You're, we had a tough year, and uh, we're going to find some places that are pretty spotty. That's that's not anything to be concerned about yet. I mean, that we're just getting in the beginning of September. That can be uh, overseeded with uh, some cereal grains, rye and oats. 
and uh, those things will come up pretty quick. Even peas, you still got time to get some field peas or winter peas in, whatever your local seed company has. But uh, as far as the chicory, is, is it looking uh, pretty healthy, or is it got more of a yellow tint, or is it uh, looking pretty green to you? It's pretty green, you know, for what is coming up. It's pretty green, but like I said, I mean, really spotty and. Um, it's not dying. It doesn't look like it's dying. It just doesn't look like, I mean, obviously it's suffering for water and germination. Um, sure. you know, and, and like I said, it's been about a month now. Will that seed that didn't germinate, will that die? Or is that a, is that a stupid question? I guess I don't know a lot about it. No. So, I mean, will it, will it germinate still? No, it's, it's just like in nature where, when seeds will sit in the seed bank, uh, they could sit there for a long time until they have the right conditions to germinate. Now that's, that doesn't guarantee that those chicory seeds will, but it's, it's a possibility. Gotcha. So you think if I go in there, I can spread, you know, cereal, cereal grain, you know, rye or or something like that and just broadcast it over it. I'll, and I I would wait for a rain, you know, if we don't really have anything coming here in the, in the, near future so i'm hoping we we get a pop-up or something and i'm just i'm gonna keep the seed in my truck i think and just in the spreader and whenever something pops up i'm going right to the field (laughs) so yeah and if you if you can get your hands on some urea or some type of heavy nitrogen fertilizer that would definitely help to throw that on right before rain okay gotcha now and i have been trying to read a little bit about chicory and and is chicory i've been reading that it will come back for about three years is that true that's correct so is there is there anything you have to do to prep it for it to come back you know and and kind of maintain it for you know year in and year out for the next you know year or two well a lot of guys will mix um clover with their chicory and they can both withstand a lot of mowing and a lot of grazing from the deer. So just, just keeping the competition down, you know, you want to keep the weeds and the grasses at bay just so it doesn't have to struggle against those. That's, that, that's about the best maintenance you can do for it. I got you. Okay. Yeah. And I've, like I said, I've, I've lucked out a little bit. My brother-in-law, he, you know, he's a farmer. He did wheat this year. I've been mentioning it on the podcast here and he let me actually, uh, work up some areas in the in the ag field to to throw down some some food because he's not going to work it up until next spring so excited about that but it's almost like a kick in the butt because now we don't have rain so nothing's really growing so it's like i just wasted time and money and doing all that and i'm like well i wonder how this season's gonna end up you know i think with your your chicory i mean it still sounds like it's fairly young right so you know, a lot of guys will plant chicory and clover in the springtime. And, and when I planted it last season, it took a while for that to really get established and get up. It, Like Brian said, over or top dressing or top seeding with some cereal grains, you could even throw some perennial clover in there. So next spring, um, you know, when, when all the snow melts and everything, you'll have clover and chicory first up. And like Brian said, you can hit that with the mower quite a bit and uh by next fall you'll have a really nice stand in that in that spot um and i i would definitely include some fertilizer uh either at planting or you know like brian said a nitrogen with a rain and that should help 
help fill in some of that gap on that chicory plot, I'd, I'd think. So I, I'm a sucker for clover. It's my favorite seed. You know, it's my favorite thing to hunt over. I, I just love lush clover plots. And, you know, in my experience, it's, they've, they're pretty maintenance-free in a way. You know what I mean? It's You do have to put some time and effort into them, but it's not like every year you have to go in and, and work, the, work the field back up and replant. You know, I've got some good clover stands three, four, five years out of them, and that's, you know, that's huge. Um, so if I went to plant clover in this, Kind of give me a little bit, Jared, give me a little bit uh, of background on clover and, and how it would react and, and how long it would last in the fall. I mean, is the first first frost going to take it right out or should I look at something where, you know, something that might withstand some colder temperatures better and I can actually use it, you know, in the in the winter to, uh, to hunt over maybe like turnips or something? Yeah, yeah. So whatever clover you're going to overseed with right now, or I always want to say overseed, but top dress with, um, it, there's perennial and annual clovers. So I would do both in that plot this fall yet. So your annual clover is super attractive and deer are going to love that along with, you know, like Ryan said, the cereal grains. So I would hit that with the clover, both annual and perennial and then cereal grains. And what that's going to do the annual clover is going to be attractive this fall. The cereal grains are going to be attractive this fall, but they're also going to act as a cover crop for the perennial clover. Your your perennial will not look that amazing this fall. It'll be small. It'll look good. But when it's really going to take off is in the spring. So once it gets established this fall and protected by the cereal grains, the annual clover, your chicory, next spring, once that's a lot of that has died off, your perennial clover is going to pop and be the first thing that's green um on on that property most likely gotcha. and it's just a really heavy browser so deer can just eat it and eat it and eat it and you're not going to really you know eat it down to a fairway like sometimes my peas and oats plots look by you know end of october they're down to you know the grass in my yard type height and you know they don't really come back as much uh that clover even with some frost is going to, is going to hold on pretty strong. And then, like I said, in the spring, it's going to be the first thing that pops up and grow all summer long. So clover's clover's really attractive, really special. We always have clover, uh, on my property, at least on the outer edges where the plots meet the woods. Uh, that's a good spot for it, in my opinion, because you can establish it, keep it for three to five years, like you said. And that's kind of the tougher spot of the food plot to grow because of, the sunlight and you know being shaded from the woods edge or, or what have you so I, I like to have that you know right at the woods edge yep gotcha now you know we had kind of talked i think in the last podcast when i i used some resurrection clover from killer food plots for my um my frost seeding back in when i when i did it within the one acre and i'll tell you you know, I've had nothing but good luck with that stuff. Like it would be knee high yeah. right now if I wouldn't have went in and mowed it. I had to mow it, um, yeah, because it was so high and so lush. Now, what does the resurrection clover have to offer? And would that be something that you would go in there, you know, with the annual and perennial? Does it have both of those in there? And is that something you would plant? It does. It does. Um, a lot of killer food plots mixes are somewhat confidential he doesn't even tell me all the good stuff that's in all that but i do know that there is a mix of both annual and perennial clover so 
my my uh, resurrection clover is also knee high. I'm letting one of my plots just go crazy and not mow it just to see what kind of forbs come up, just to see how tall it can get um, and see what kind of diversity I can get in that food plot without really touching it besides spot spraying some weeds and stuff like that. Um, but his resurrection clover is a mix of perennial and annual. So, you know, it's, it looks good right now. It's going to take all the brows it can take this fall when your deer are on it all the time, uh, back in that bedding area on that one acre. Yep. And then next spring, it's going to look just as good again. Yeah. Man, I'll I've been impressed with his stuff, man. I really have. I have too, you know, and I got three bags of the Border Patrol and I couldn't get it in this year. I was too scared because we weren't getting the rain. <laughs> And oh, I'm after like, our first podcast, yeah. yes. Yep. And I, I'm like, I don't want to put it in, and you know, you spend money on this stuff, and it's, it's not the cheapest stuff out there. And I'm like, you mm-hmm. know what? If you just don't plan it, you'll never know. And I, well, I didn't plan it. It's an extra thing now. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, I've had the best luck with clover in the timber. Is that weird, or is that you know something that's common? Because I've had clover plots that have been out in the middle of nowhere, you know, in, in just an open field, but I've had the best luck broadcasting clover in the timber, trees all around it, and it comes up and it looks like a lush green carpet. Is I mean, is there any trick to that? Is there something I'm doing? I'm not fertilizing. I'm not doing anything. I'm literally going there like a throw and grow, and it's taken off like crazy. So I'll, I'll start on that. And to answer your question before that, I just looked up their mix because they didn't have it memorized. They have crimson white clover, ladino clover, red clover, acylite clover, I'm sorry, acylite clover, and white clover. Brian, I probably butchered that one, but, and burstine clover. So as you see, there's, what, six or seven different types of clover in there. And I know that it is more of a shade-tolerant uh, crop or variety than certain things out there. Um, Brian, why do you find that it grows in the woods so well? Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the factors, and and like Aaron was talking about the the lack of rain that you guys have had, that's pretty common in the mid to late summer, and uh, something out in the field is going to dry out faster, and not be as lush. And whereas you got something in the shady, filtered sun areas, it's going to benefit from that uh, extra moisture that's not getting dried out by the heat. I could see that and for I'll, sure. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, it, it depends. Like like most times when you go and break something up in a wood setting, the soil is most likely going to be on the acidic side. And mm-hmm. uh, But not, that's not always the case. There's There's been times on properties that I've done for friends and other properties that I've owned, I've gone into a spot and thought, well, nothing's going to do good here this first year, but I'm going to get something down and it's done fantastic. So it's, it's just, it's kind of a luck of the draw if you're not doing a soil test, but, uh, you know, you got a lot of good organic matter in a, in a forest setting with all the leaves and everything breaking down. So sometimes, uh, food plots will benefit from that. I got you. Plus there's nothing better looking than, you know, a bunch of trees with like a clover carpet. Oh, I don't know why, great. but that just looks so cool. It does. Look you good. know what I mean? It literally looks like my why. lawn that I just like hold and went and plopped trees yeah. in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Now, you know, and either one of you guys can take this question. Um, I've always wondered 
what you guys do for like food plot designing. You know, is there a special design when like you're going in and making a food plot, whether it's for like a client or if it's for yourself or a friend or something? I know it could be very situational, but if you had the perfect opportunity to design a food plot the way you wanted, how would you do it? Jared, if you want to take it first, I'd really like to to get your thoughts on it. Sure, sure. That's a great question. There are um, a lot of different shapes you can use. Um, a lot of them kind of relate to the same, the same aspect, in my opinion, and that's driving the deer you're hunting within bow range. If you're talking like a micro kill plot or you know a, a plot you're going to hunt. Yeah, let's it, let's talk like a uh, micro kill okay. plot for bow. Yep. Sure, 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 sure. Perfect. Um, my favorite is an hourglass plot. Uh, there are also some other, you know, just imagine the hourglass shape, wide up top, narrow in the middle, wide on the bottom. And there are plenty of other ones, uh, an L-shaped plot. Um, I even saw one that's like a V-shaped plot that I thought that's just an L turned on its side. So it's really all the same kind of idea. Uh, what you're trying to do is to get those deer to naturally feed towards your tree stand. And, but you don't want to choke them off too tight or they feel like there's, you know, the cover's too tight and they feel um, a little bit stressed and they don't like to get themselves in an area where they feel trapped in. But what I did on my property this year and also um, working with the HuntWise guys, we're putting in a new food plot up there. We also did an hourglass shape. But you start really wide on one end towards the cover with the deer you expect the deer to come from. And slowly you narrow that down. Not, not by too much. Like, you just narrow it down. It's a thinner bite food plot versus where it started. So maybe where it started, say, it's 60 yards wide. You narrow it down towards the middle of the hourglass shape, and now maybe you're at 35 yards, right? So it's not a very dramatic uh, pinch, but, you know, you, me, and Brian can all shoot our bows pretty good at 35, 40 yards. So if you can get that deer to naturally walk towards the other direction maybe there's some destination food over there or some more bedding areas he's going to check out uh, that, that deer you're hunting you can get him to just walk the edge of that plot but you've naturally forced him within bow range um and that's that's why i like the hourglass or or even like a v shape where they start out on one side they kind of meander and graze as they come down through the plot you know towards your stand right so you the reason we're doing these kill plots is for that, you know, it says in the name right there, we're, we're trying to be able to hunt these. Um, the deer are not going to spend a ton of time on them. They're not going to be there all night. They're just going to move through. And when they do move through, you want them to come through a bow range. Yep. Which I, I totally agree. You know, there's tons of different designs out there. And, you know, something I've been battling with myself this year is I've been talking to you guys about it, you know, on the one acre farm, it's a big ag field and there's no food in it right now. But I told you, you know, I, I made some food plots in it, but it, I'm trying to think outside the box a little bit to get these deer to have to come in front of these stands. You know, it's either, uh, it's basically hunting fence rows, you know, on big ag fields. And, you know, I've been, the last couple of years, I've been experimenting with, um, licking branches and, you know, taking a tree out and, and digging a hole in the field and putting a, you know, a, a basically a, a scrape tree right next to it. You see a lot of guys do it. Mark Drew does it a lot, you know. 
And from the pictures right now that I'm already getting, and it's, you know, we're still in the summer, but it's working right now. But it's, we'll see how it happens, what happens in the fall when the, you know, the velvet comes off and we'll see if it entices them any other way. But that's what I'm just trying to find. And it seems like deer like to gravitate towards structure in a way, um, whether that be, you know, hay bales out in the middle of a hay field or, you know, timber, you know, a couple trees out in the middle of an ag field that there's no other timber around. It could be one oak tree. It seems like deer walk by those things a lot. They just like structure for some reason. Um, but Brian, you know, I, I really want to pick your brain about it too. What is your ideal setup when it comes to a, a kill plot for archery? Yeah. Jared mentioned some excellent ones. Uh, definitely the hourglass shape is one of the most popular and for good reason it works. Um, another thing uh, that's amazing is the stuff that Nick Percy's been doing from Killer Food Plots. He's been coming up with some crazy designs, and with that Border Patrol that you were talking about earlier, you could really get creative with steering the deer where you want them to go because it's 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 a tall, almost fence-like application, but it's it doesn't prevent them from running through it. And uh, you could you could go on uh, I think it's Killer Food Plot's YouTube channel. He he's got all kind of crazy patterns that they've been testing, and he's come up with some really good ones. And it's amazing to watch how they work during the hunting season. Yeah, another thing to consider, uh, as much as the shape that you want to do, you you need to think about terrain and how the deer are using the area too before you put it in there. It's kind of like turkey hunting. It's a lot easier to hunt them where they want to be and to try to pull them somewhere that they don't normally want to be. So take that into consideration. If you got a spot where there's three or four trails coming together, that'd be a good spot to put an hourglass shaped food plot in. And, uh, or in a situation like my farm, I have no terrain. I'm, I'm in flat country. Uh, I use a lot of fence gaps and border patrol and other things to try to steer the deer. So if you've got a situation where you've got a fence and a, and a gate that you leave open for hunting season, you can use a food plot, shape it to neck it down. So where they're coming through that fence gap, you put a stand on the downwind side, it can be incredibly deadly. Yeah, and you're just trying to concentrate deer to a one area. And I totally get that. We had that scenario last year, Casey and I did it in Kansas, uh, right in the middle of timber. And it was all these oak flats and all that stuff. And it was rolling hills, but we'd walk through probably 60 acres of timber and we found the most concentrated area. And it was about the about as big as a computer desk. And it was this little low creek dried up creek bed and it's literally i mean there was every track was just about as big as a computer desk right there in that opening and you walk up and down that dried creek bed you would not find another track it was just the most concentrated area so we put a stand there and once you know it i mean deer just come through there all the time so you know it's just trying to find the most concentrated or make the most concentrated uh deer area that you want to you want to make now Going forward a little bit, I want to revert back a little bit to to some food plots in, in like last minute food plots. I know there's a lot of guys and gals out there that you know we're in September right now, early September, and season's coming. Are we too late to plant food plots right now? And you know, if not, what are you doing to get in there and and try to keep the pressure off the farm? I know that's kind of hard, 
but uh, you know, what what are you trying to do right now, and is it too late? Yeah, you're you're definitely not too late. Um, it's all based on you know, honestly, for me and you and and Brian, we all have families, we all have kids, we all have work and lives and everything else. Get in what you can get in when you can do it. I mean, I was able to get in some plots last week, which is the end of August. Depending on what variety, like brassicas, I like to get those in prior to that, you know, a week to, to three weeks prior to that, to be honest. Um, and, I, and I tried some of that with a no-till strategy I had. I tried the second week in August, and it failed. I uh, did, did not germinate. So I went back in there, and, you know, I thought I have a month till season. I'm going to disc up some of this stuff and, and get some stuff planted. I think that when you're in a crunch time like this, it's important to pick the right variety. So, you know, beans, for instance, are not going to get up to maturity or do much for you planting them, you know, early September. So if you start out with, um, we always talk cereal grains come September. So if you want to get out there now and say you have a spot you haven't even touched yet, you could spray that with glyphosate or Roundup today you could also broadcast today. You could also pack it down today. Uh, you might not be able to disc or rototill as easily without it being dead, but some tillers will burn right through sod and whatnot without even spraying. So if I were to go out there again today, which uh, I'll be doing this weekend, I'm going to plant a cereal grain mix, which is oats, cereal rye, uh, or also called rye grain, winter wheat or buckwheat, either or. And then uh, I'll also add in some purple top turnips or some brassicas. And what, what that's going to do, the, the cereal grains are super attractive, only when they're young, though. So it's almost, it, you know, you're not too late. You don't want to plant cereal grains prior to right now because once they get too tall and too mature, they lose their attractiveness. So I would focus on cereal grains and, um, you know, overseed with some with some purple top turnips or some some brassicas right now brian what are your thoughts on that yeah you've, you've given them some pretty good advice there definitely cereal grains um i i think we still have some time for a couple other things my favorite mix is a mix of rye oats groundhog radish winter peas and red mammoth clover and i can give you the the breakdowns per acre if you want me to go into that much detail well you know with that mix is that a mix that you've you've kind of come up with yourself or is that something that's that's out there no the first guy that i've heard that that sort of coined that mix was a guy by the name of paul knox he was a uh, big time wildlife habitat manager out in iowa and uh he was on a forum that jared and i used to belong to and uh, he just was a wealth of knowledge. Unfortunately, he passed away, but uh, his information can be found all over the internet. He's he's done some great tests and some great studies, and it's just been a proven mix that he's used forever. So, and that that's a mix that you'll plant right now here in September for for your fall mix. Yeah, I'll be planting this uh, hopefully Thursday if the rain holds off. So then. You know, if we can, let's break down each of the what's in the mix. And 
you know, when it's the best and, you know, when it's going to die off basically if it does. So could you start with, you know, the first ingredient and then kind of give me the stats on that and then so on and so forth? Sure. Yeah, I'll break down the, the, the percentages. Now you can shift these either way. Like since, since we're getting later into September and if you if it's going to be a couple more weeks till you get to it, you obviously want to go heavier on the cereal grains because the uh, radishes and the peas aren't going to, get real effective for you you might get uh you know a couple inches of young growth which is great deer will come in and hammer them but that that's all you're going to get out of them if you get too late but for the cereal rye and the oats i like to do about 50 pounds each per acre and then uh add in 20 pounds of peas and then five pounds of the groundhog radish and about eight pounds of the mammoth red clover now like i said depending on your area and you, you you'll be able to fine tune it over the years to see if you like more peas less peas more radishes but that gives you a basic uh breakdown of what is, is a pretty decent mix and if you get it in within the next week or two it's it's all going to do fine and then your red clover will come back and your rye will come back in the spring and and the great thing about that rye it has a uh, property in its roots that prohibits a lot of the bad weeds and the bad grasses from growing the next spring. And it makes it so much easier. That's why a lot of guys are using it in their no-till applications. They'll plant rye in the fall, come back in the spring, terminate that rye. And the only thing they have to kill is the rye because it's kept the weeds and the grasses at bay. They broadcast in it and then they either crimp it, roll over it or mow it. And they got a beautiful spring and summer food plot that's interesting about the rye i didn't know that yep. now can you can you put rye with just about anything and, it'll, and it will it'll work yeah it, it doesn't seem to affect the beneficial plants like this like the mix that i'm talking about but you'll notice in the spring when you come back in the in the rise you know three or four foot tall there'll be nothing in there except for the clover it's amazing that's awesome now to, to shift gears just a little bit, Jared, I want to go back before I forget because I can, I can tell it's slipping my mind here. But you had brought up turnips. Now, turnips is something I have never really had very good luck with, and I don't know why. Um, I haven't done it a lot, but is that something right now that I could go into that kill plot, put in, and, you know, and it still be successful for, for me for late season or, you know, just in the fall? And if so... What do I have to do to try to get the best stand, you know, out of it? And, and I'm talking about in that uh, chicory plot. Okay. So, yeah, you could definitely plant that now or, or very soon. They're very short season brassica. Uh, you know, they, they grow fast. You're going to have the, the turnip below the surface of the soil and also the tops or the tubers or whatever people like to call them on top. Um, don't plant too much don't overseed and i top dress what I, what I mean by top dressing what i mentioned earlier is going over your food plot like you're going to do in your chicory plot and and top seeding with more seed overseeding is too much seed you know per acre or per the size of your food plot you do not want to overseed with turnips because what they'll do is they'll out compete each other your bulbs which are the late season part of the plant will not get as big so if you go in there and lightly top dress with turnips, you're going to have 
plenty of time for those to get established. Um, I mean, like I said, I do like playing them a little earlier in mid-August, but I'm, I'm planning some this weekend. There's no doubt about that. And then that'll be early September. So I would definitely try that, and I would definitely add that to your chicory. Uh, that'll fill in the bare spots. Great. So what you mean by, you know, don't overseed, which I, which I understand what that is, but that could be a fine line for just anybody. Now, how is, you know, what's the best way to gauge if you're overseeding or not? Yeah, so it all depends on on what blend. Um, sometimes I'll I'll buy some some just straight purple pot turnips for this exact reason. Uh, sometimes I'll use a brassica mix, you know, like Killer Food Pots has. Um, I just always favor the light side, especially during during this top dress period. So if you have, you know, a, a half acre of chicory per se, and, you know, it's kind of spotty, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to still add a full half acre's worth of purple top turnips based on, on what it is. Yeah, you're going to, you know, you're not going to have all of them come up and, and take over your chicory because your chicory is already established, but they are, they are pretty rapid and they will fight their way to the surface and, and give you a good variety and fill in those spots. So I would just do your research because there's so many different types of, of seeds and radishes and turnips that you want to make sure you have the right amount. And then I would just, if you're top dressing, I would stay on, a little bit on the light side because you already have a food pot established. Now, if you're going, gotcha. if you're going no-till, if you're going into a no-till situation where, like Brian mentioned, you have that rye that you that you terminated, that you either crimped or sprayed or mowed, and you're not tilling the soil, that's a whole other way to do a food plot. But in that case, um, which I'm speaking like this because this happened to me last year, I planted brassicas. It came in spotty, like you're saying a chicory did. And then I went over pretty heavy with the seed rate on that because when you're when you don't have that seed to soil contact anymore, and you're you're broadcasting into a dead thatch, you do need to account for what's not going to make it down to to where the seeds need to be. And I do you know maybe add another twenty five to fifty percent. I probably don't need to go fifty. Probably another twenty five percent just to just to be safe on on adding that extra seed when you're doing a no-till plot. I gotcha. Now, in my scenario right now, my farm is, you know, pretty small. I mean, it's 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 a lot of acres, but not very much timber. And I'm right on the edge of a, kind of on some bedding in, in some timber. And it's not very big. So would you recommend just going in there on foot, obviously, and what I do right now is because I'm anal about it, but play the wind, right? And go in there and just low profile, walk in and broadcast it and get out? Or is that something I'm going to have to kind of work in? Will it still take off if there's a good rain, you know, if you just leave it on top of the soil? Yeah, that, no, I, I would do exactly what you just said. I would sneak in when you have the wind in your favor um, and a rain, you know, on the horizon, hopefully. Um, I'd go in there. I would broadcast right into your existing food pot right now. That's exactly what I'm going to do to mine. No matter how good or bad they look, I'm still going to do it. And I would, I would just broadcast it and get the heck out. I mean, you, you're not going to want to go in there and, 
And, uh, and maybe, Brian, could you cultipack over existing chicory? I know you can run over clover and it will not die. Um, I've tried to kill it. It will not die. Can you <laughs> can you go in there and broadcast and then cultipack over that chicory you have, Brian? Yeah, I think you could, but it's it's, it's pretty tough. Yeah, so you don't need not, to. It's unnecessary at this point. Yeah, and that's – I honestly, I would probably just, you know, spend the money – of just buying the seed and just going in there, you know, try to get in there undetected and just do it really quick and get out. And, you know, whatever happens, happens at this point. I, if anything takes over, you know, anything germinates and, and, and comes up, then I'm going to guess, I'm, I'm going to take that as a win, you know, and, and hopefully something will take over. And the thing is, is I always, I always like to throw myself into the fire and whatever happens coming out. That's, I mean, that's, that's my experiences I take from that. And it's like, well, maybe next year I'm like, that didn't work too well. I better not do that again, you know, and, and figure out a new game plan, maybe get off my butt or, you know, like you said, there's so much, so much time taken up in the summer. You know, you want to be out doing other things and with a family and a kid and everything. And it's like, you just feel like you don't have the time to do it. So uh, we'll see though. I, it's all about trial and error for me. Well, I, I think you're on the right path. Um, the frost heating obviously worked great for you. I would recommend doing that again on any plots you're going to keep, but what you could do with that chicory, um, a, a lot of guys will come in with a nitrogen. Uh, Brian and I talked to Lincoln on our last podcast. He, he likes to use a slow release nitrogen so it doesn't burn up your, your food plots when they're already you know growing and established. You don't want to put too much fertilizer on a plot. It could burn it up and kill it, right? So right. a couple ways to get around that. Um, and what I would do to this plot of yours, I would I would add a light fertilizer. Um, there's a slow-release nitrogen, which I just learned about last time. Like I said on, on our podcast, we talked to Lincoln about that. That's a good one. But what I've also done in the past, I've even taken a 12-12-12 and just gone super light with my broadcast spreader and just, you know, threw it, threw it over the plot. And it wasn't very much, but it gave the plants an extra boost. It didn't kill them, didn't burn them up. And that was without a rain coming. And I just, I was very light. If you have a rain coming, I mean, you can add more nitrogen than that. Um, Brian, you know, Brian, how much nitrogen do you add before a rain if your plot's already established like Aaron's? Uh, it depends on the size, of course. Uh, probably 50 pounds to a half acre, something along those lines. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean I'm, I was in the same boat. It's not a ton, but it's uh, it's enough to give that chicory that extra boost, and then your other seeds that you're top dressing will, will benefit from that as that works into the soil, and they start to grow. So I would, I would awesome. definitely do that along with your with your top dressing of, of turnips or radishes. And also I would hit cereal grains. I mean, as many times as you want to go in there, Jeff Sturgis talks about how, how he'll start, he'll plant some now. He'll broadcast again mid September. He'll broadcast again one more time early October. And what that gives you is three stages of young growth. You know, you have a month old, you know, rye, Come October first, you have two week old rye, and you also have rye that's just sprouting, and deer like yep. young tender plants. So that's just uh, it. All depends on how much you want to go in there. Um, but if you're going to go in there, I would I would do it that way. If it were me, gotcha. 
Yeah, and that's something I'm definitely gonna, I'm gonna, you know, take into consideration because I I don't want this thing to go by the wayside. You know, I I spent a lot of time, you know, going in there and and mowing it and killing it and then working it up and and trying to get it to to the best that I can make it because like I've you know talked to you guys about on the one acre farm it's it's all ag like I said so I'm trying to find little unique ways to be able to put food in the farm and that kind of segues into my next question to you is you know I've got two waterways that uh, divide up the ag field basically and I mean it's flat it's just like where you're at Brian it's flat there's no topography really but they are gradual little rolling hills in this field well in the south waterway this year I, I i built a platform um it's about eight feet off the ground and i've got a box blind on it and i can shoot a gun or a bow out of it well the years that it's going to be corn on each side of the waterway which is probably going to be next year and i mean any year honestly i'm just trying to find unique ways to to put some food here so i asked my brother-in-law if i could you know next year work up that waterway as long as i don't you know, hurt anything with the erosion because those waterways play a big role in the bigger picture, which is his ag fields and the crops that he makes money on. So I don't want to ruin anything with the erosion, but I would like to go in and plant a couple strips of food in the waterway. Now, have you guys done anything with waterways in ag fields and, you know, trying to find, I'm just trying to find a way to go in there and, and benefit and not ruin anything that he's doing, you know? So have you guys experienced anything with that? Yeah. If you could go into a little more detail about the waterways, are they like ditches or how are they shaped? So it's basically, it's just, I mean, obviously runoff from both sides of the, I mean, on each side of the waterway, it's they're gradual hills that go up. Um, when you're down in the waterway, you can't see over the hills. So it is like a low area. The deer love to travel it. Uh, in a lot of areas of the waterway, the CRP or the goldenrod, whatever it is that grows in it, are taller than me. I mean, I'm 5'10". Sure. And it's it's as tall, if not taller than me, which is great for bedding because the deer like to bed in it too. But it's a long waterway. I can I could get some strips in there. And honestly, the CRP stays pretty high. So I could come in off the field a little bit, let's say two foot or something, and not take the grasses off there, and the deer could still feel safe in there because you can't really see it from the road. Um, so that's almost acting as like a border patrol in a way. Right. And right. I've got a I've got a bulletproof in. The only thing is I can't hunt it on a west wind. It's got to be any wind but a west wind, um, which is fine. But uh, I got a bulletproof in, and I want to plant you know, some food in there, but like down in the lower areas, it's like green grass, you know, if you can visualize it. And then you got this tall goldenrod and it's not very deep. Like it doesn't go down to like a, like a, like a ditch almost. It's just kind of like a, you know, it's like a bowl. It's like a bottom of a bowl. You know what I mean? It's kind of, there's no bumps or nothing in it. It's just a nice gradual, you know, if you cut a pipe in half, you know, the long way, it kind of looks like that. So if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, if there's, if there's goldenrod growing down there, you can definitely plant it with just about anything because goldenrod, it, it needs drier soil. We're not talking like cattails where it's always damp. So you could definitely get away with planting any of the above that we were just talking about for sure. 
Now, what what would you do in a perfect scenario? Would you go in there and, you know, with trying to take erosion into consideration because I don't want to ruin anything he's doing, but in a perfect scenario, what would you do? What would you plant? How would you go about getting it prepped? Well, that's where the uh, a good mix would come into play because you'd always have something there, even even with the mix that I mentioned, like the groundhog radish and the peas they're in the oats too they'll die over the winter but then the clover and the rye will still be there holding the dirt so you definitely want to plan to have something always growing there so you're not having bare dirt if you're worried about erosion right so try to get something that's going to be there year round and and or like you could do a jeff sturgis method where you go in there and you broadcast two or three times out of the year would that still work absolutely Okay. Yeah, and, and that's something I might pick your guys' brain a little bit more when it comes to next year planning season and, and when I wanna when I wanna do that and just kinda revisit it maybe. And maybe that's something we document as well and just kinda the progression because I feel like there's probably a lot of guys out there that are trying to find unique ways. I mean I'm not the only one out there with a with a farm that's all ag <laughs> right and away. just uh fence rows, you know. So I'm just trying to think outside the box a little bit and you know, think of some new ways to be able to, you know, food is, is really big food, water, cover. I mean, everybody says it, you know, um, and cover something that I've been working on, but it's in small portions. So food is the next thing that I got to do, but it's in small portions. So, um, when really saving crops isn't an option, you know, and, and paying for crops, it's really not an option. And, uh, so I got to think uniquely and outside the box and, and try to figure something out here. So, We'll see. Well, another good thing you could do, uh, especially anybody else in your situation with a smaller area to work, you can plan all the access roads. Uh, Like Clover will handle equipment traffic all day long. Now, normally I wouldn't recommend that on bigger farms because you're not going to be able to concentrate the deer. But in a situation like yours where you're limited on places where you could put food, Clover would be fantastic on all the access roads. I got you. That that's a good plan. You know, and one thing I I also thought about too is the fence rows. So they're wooded fence rows, and obviously there's like CRP grass that grows up in them. So you know, I think it would be a lot of work, but I think it might be beneficial. And one of the stands that I have, I was thinking about going in there and trying to clear out any debris, any thatch, any you know CRP. Maybe with a weed whip, it'd be a heck of a lot of work. But clearing out a little area, it could be a 30-yard strip, I don't know. Clearing it out and going in and spraying it and then just letting that you know that thatch go down. You wouldn't be able to probably work it up. Um, it'd be hard to work up. But like broadcasting something and just whatever happens, you know, that's a little food too that's going to be there, you know, all year hopefully or, or in the fall at least for, you know, when you're there hunting. I don't know sure. if that's something you guys have you've you've thought of or even have come across too because i know there's some deep woods blends out there that work really well in shaded areas so that was also a a thought i i had as well so i'm just trying to you know you know express all my options and and figure something out so yeah i think that's a a great idea matter of fact i would try that i would take your roundup or your glyphosate same thing and spray that area uh, you might not even have to cut it down, uh, depending on, on what's there. And that's going to create a thatch and mulch layer for whatever seed you, you spread there. And 
I would pick something that can grow easy, you know, like, uh, like a clover or a rye or an oat. Um, I don't see how that couldn't work. And especially if the rest of the fence row, you know, north and south of you is just all the same. And then you have this 30 yards maybe just in front of you of this kind of cross between some cover and some maybe some turnips that are coming up or maybe some oats. I mean, I guarantee you're going to see deer focus on that area. They might even start crossing right there versus where they can cross anywhere else. It's, yep. just, it's just like yep. enhancing your your area, your hunting spot as best you can. Um, you know, dig a little spot and put a 20-gallon tote down there for a water hole. I mean, I know you have some waterways, but I don't know if they're they're active or or full or if you're high and dry in a field somewhere in a, in a fence row. You put a little tote there in the ground, I mean – I had a 140-inch Michigan buck drinking out of mine last year. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something I've done on my family farm as well in an area where there wasn't any water at all. I put a 20-gallon down, and honestly, I went back this year to try to dig it up because I don't hunt the area anymore. Um, the area's changed quite a bit. The deer use it differently. I can't get the darn thing out of the water or the <laughs> hole, so I guess it's going to stay there. But that was another thing I was going to do too in – I do use a Banks water trough system yeah, on this great. farm. Yeah, and you know it's it's, but I put it in an area because you know I used it on the family farm for two or three years, and the deer. I tried hunting over it, and the deer would only use it after dark. Like they just could never yeah. get used to it, but they would use it. Um, I put this this one in the ground. You know, I dug it and put it in the ground. I I, I watched a lot of Jeff Sturgis stuff on that. He's you know big on water sources, um, and they seem to like that better. So I was thinking about doing the same thing. And like you said, and the best thing about that is you don't have to fill the darn thing. You fill it once and usually just let the rainwater take over. Um, and my experience, I haven't fi- had to fill that other one in like three years. You know, I filled it once and like the rainwater and the runoff takes over, uh, which is good. But that, that Banks water trough, I either the evaporation and the deer, like the mix of the two, or the deer just hammer the heck out of it. I don't have a camera on it. But uh, I was telling you guys how in the middle of these three ag fields, there's uh, one of the ag fields is landlocked. So there's uh, a right of way that goes back to that for the farmers to get back there and everything. Well, it's in the middle of a section. No timber around it, no nothing. You know, you're not screwing up any deer or anything around there. So I put it there because I have to fill it quite often in the summer. So that's why I did that. It was a ways away from everything, but it's a water source. And I've kind of positioned things to where I can hunt field edges and, you know, little travel routes that a deer might be taking to go there, you know, to, to, to get a drink. It's a ways away from me. But it's the thought I had, and you know, it's I'm just trying to express every option that I have. Yep, I think that's all. That's all it is, really. You know, you know, a food plot, a water hole, a mock scrape. I mean, anything you can tilt the the scales towards you in your favor, do it. Well, I guess lastly, I want to round this podcast out. You know, I'm taking up a lot of your guys' time here, and it's kind of getting late. But I got a couple questions for you, and it's something I've been doing the last couple weeks, and and uh, just feeling everybody out about it. And I got a couple questions. And first, uh, Jared, I'll start with you, and then Brian, you can take over when he's done. But um, if you if you only had seven days to hunt in the fall for whitetails, only seven all fall, 
when are you taking them and why? I would be flexible and I would take them on cold fronts. Uh, cold fronts. So what I would do is say mid-October, we have a 10 or 12 degree temperature drop and there's a storm moving in. Uh, the wind's picking up that night, maybe some light precipitation. I would pick one evening, bam, right there. Um, I would do that the next time it came through, probably mid to late October. Um, last year we had one on the 3rd of October. So that would be probably two or three days right there. And then I'd burn up the rest of them, uh, pre-rut early, early November. It'd be the, the coldest, nastiest days I could find. I, I, I'm a sucker for bad weather. I see the biggest fear in bad weather and, uh, that's what I'm in the woods. Gotcha. Brian, how about you? Were you talking about consecutive days if you only have like a week's vacation? Yeah, if you only have a week's vacation, oh, but you can break. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. I like the unique answers. If it, you know, if you had a week's vacation, but you didn't have to take it all at one time if you didn't want to, you could break it up. And you could use like uh, Friday as a vacation day and hunt. Saturday, Sunday, if you want, you know what I mean? So you're actually expanding your days, but if you only had a week's vacation, what are you doing? Oh, anywhere from October 25th through the middle of November. I mean, that's, that's, that's the money days. And I'm learning the more time I spend in the woods that that, that last week of October is, is really exceptional. If you, if you know where the bucks are at, because they're, they're getting antsy and they're, they're leaving their core areas a little bit, leaving their bedding areas a little bit earlier. And uh, I just noticed the last few years I've been paying attention to it, that that 25th, 26th, 27th of October through the end of October is, is pretty special. I got gotcha. you. That's another great answer because I, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to get everybody's you know perspective that I have on and – I kind of I might pull these up at the end whenever I decide it's over and just kind of see what guys, you know, say and see if there's any trends going on. So it's just just something different, and a lot of people like hearing it. A lot of listeners like hearing it, and you know, might give them some ideas when to take their vacation. Also, but all right. Uh, all right. So so one more I got for you, and this is uh, I I think I know what your answer is not going to be, but I'm going to test you anyway. So. I'll start with you, Brian, on this one. If you only had one whitetail state to whitetail hunt in the re- for the rest of your life, what state would it be and why? Well, I'd have to go with Ohio because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, I'd like to say Iowa is probably the, the best answer, but I've never hunted there, so I'd have to stick with Ohio. Well, and that's the default answer, too, so we can't accept that. Iowa's the <laughs> – <laughs> I can't accept that well, There answer. you go. <laughs> So, Ohio. Okay. So, Jared, how about you? Well, if you can't pick Iowa, and which I've never hunted Iowa either, uh, I'll be going there this fall. Luckily, I finally drew. Um, so, I'll be able to comment on that later. But I, I've hunted Ohio. I love Ohio. You really never know what's going to pop over the ridge in Ohio. It could be anything. It's insane down there. Uh, what I What I like more, though, I like the ditches and draws of the Midwest. Like, like uh, I'd probably go Nebraska. I'd probably go Nebraska because you can get out west, you can hustle me old deer, but 
there are a bunch of good bucks in Nebraska, and over the counter tag, I can you can buy. Actually, I think you can buy more than one after you kill your first buck. And the scenery is just, you know, the the crop fields and the drainages. It's just like Iowa or or these other states. Um, I would pick Illinois, but the tag is like six hundred bucks there, so I'd probably go. I go to Nebraska. Perfect, awesome. I haven't had anybody say Nebraska yet, so or Ohio, and uh, so that's good. I, I, you know, it's that those are cool questions that I we actually had. We did a live podcast with Chris and Casey, and those are a couple of questions that people wanted to know. So uh, I thought those were unique. So I just want to get everybody's perspective. So perfect. Well, good deal, boys. I I appreciate you coming on here and doing this, and I thank you very much. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you guys loose here and and uh let you guys have the rest of your evening so if you guys could you know jared or brian whoever jared I'll, i guess i'll say to you make it easy but uh let everybody know where they can you know listen to your podcast and and where they can consume all the uh content yeah thanks aaron appreciate that um we are over at habitatpodcast.com i can also go on any of the places you can get your podcast whether it's itunes stitcher spotify we're on all those, um, and we'd love to see you guys on Facebook and Instagram. We're we're heavy on there. Uh, and kind of to your question about, you know, what seven days would you pick? Uh, we we kind of do this cool series on our podcast called Game Plan or Game Plan episodes. Aaron, if if you kill a buck on like November, or I'm sorry, let's say October twelfth, uh, I will probably be calling you asking you to interview like that night or the next night. And just, you know, putting putting into the questions, all of them, and trying to find out what all the listeners out there can do that next weekend when they're off of work to go out there and maybe try to replicate what you did, your success. So that's something that we like to do during season only, um, you know, and, and try to give the listeners something to, to grasp. So maybe you killed your buck, you know, that week. Well, I listen to your podcast the next day, and maybe I can put that same sort of plan together that weekend. It's just... Uh, something we like to do so i figured i'd mention that awesome that's a cool little uh you know series i'm, I'm gonna i can't wait to hear because you know relevance is is always is always good you know and you you want to you want to hear things i mean it's hard it's hard to hear things as it happens you know it's it, it's not possible so it's it's cool to to hear that story within even if it's within a day or two so i can't wait to to hear that so very cool well I'm going to let you guys go. Like I said, thank you very much for both of you coming on and uh, obviously good luck this year. And um, we'll be talking to you soon again. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Good luck this year too. And there you have it. Another good podcast. Number 81. Thank you everybody for listening and subscribing and supporting everything. I can't thank everybody enough. This, uh, this thing's really blown up and I really enjoy doing this and hopefully a lot of people are getting some things out of it you know i don't claim to be an expert by any means on any of this stuff it's just i'm a regular guy and like to like to talk deer hunting and i'm going to take every excuse i can get to talk deer hunting in any shape way or form and uh, hopefully everybody out there enjoys it enjoys my monotone voice and my bs sessions and you know the guests that i have come on here so thank you for doing that please go to itunes and leave a five-star rating i'd really appreciate that And uh, don't forget, next week we're going to have a new episode right here on the Fall Podcast.
Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.